0: Okay, tonight we're gonna be looking at Exodus 5, 6, and a little bit of 7. Like any good story, a good movie, a good novel, when there's a problem to be resolved and the characters in the novel set out to, with a plan to solve the problem, there are inevitable setbacks. There are inevitable problems where it looks like their plan is falling apart and there's no way that it's going to be accomplished. That's a lot of what's going to go on in these passages tonight. Moses has been commissioned. He has heard the word of God. He's heard this message of what God is going to do. He's met with God, maybe in an even fearful way. He's ready to go and proclaim to Pharaoh and to the people, and things fall apart very quickly. And I think it's really important to consider that as we move into the Word tonight, where things fall apart in our lives, or where we think, oh, great, we we thought we had a great plan, we thought God was with us, and it has just gone to pieces. I think this passage of Scripture has a lot to say to us. And we'll be reading everything, so just be prepared to jump as I mention verses, but we'll start in 5.1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. If you're paying really close attention, you'll notice that Moses doesn't do everything like God told him to do it. He doesn't bring the elders with him, which God told him to do. He doesn't say the exact same things that God told him to say, and the reaction is pretty bad. I don't know Yahweh. I am not going to listen to Yahweh. Uh, No. right. Moses comes in again. Maybe he's altering the plan. Maybe he forgets. Maybe he's fearful. But at any rate, it's not precisely what God told him to do. And it doesn't go well. Down in verse seven, here's Pharaoh's ultimate reply. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of the bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Okay, they're lazy. Worship, festival to God, you're lazy. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. The big question that Pharaoh asks is, who is Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. I don't, I'm not aware of him, and I'm not going to give him any allegiance. And notice that this was also Moses' question. What is your name? Who are you? What are you like? Who is God? This is the prevailing question all through here. And God is, in part, the story of Exodus is his, him answering that question for Moses, for Israel and also for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to find out who God is and what He is like. So keep that question in mind because it's going to unfold in this passage tonight, and it's going to unfold all through the story of the Exodus. So Pharaoh responds to a reasonable request: "Let my people go and worship." He doesn't say just let them go entirely, but let them go and have this festival. Pharaoh responds, and he makes things worse. And I just want to point out: it did not, and I don't believe it had to go this way. Okay, there've been two pharaohs before that the people of God have interacted with. Remember the first? It was the pharaoh that Abraham was under when he went down there. And Pharaoh did some inappropriate things, but God sent what? Plagues. And how did that Pharaoh respond? He sent Moses or he sent Abraham out with riches. He sent him out and blessed him and said, "I'm sorry that Pharaoh responded really well. The Pharaoh during, jo- during Joseph's time, he responded well as well, right? He welcomes them. He hosts them. He doesn't make life harder for them. And when Jacob dies, he provides all of his resources to give this royal wedding. You know, we're having this royal wedding for Elizabeth. Well, there was this royal wedding for Jacob and Pharaoh subsidized it. So the point is, there have been two pharaohs before who saw something about this people and blessed them and helped them. So it doesn't have to go the way it's going with this particular pharaoh. And remember, he's not named. Okay, he doesn't get a name because in part of how he responds um, to God's people. So of course, it goes worse. They have to produce the same amount of bricks, but they have to provide some of the raw materials And the complaints go up and down. It goes to the foreman. It goes to the people. It goes to the taskmasters over the Israelites. And ultimately, Pharaoh will say, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So it's complaining all up and down the line. And Pharaoh digs in his heels. And so the people meet Moses and Aaron when they come out. And this is what they say in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they, came out from, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the people who had some hope, they had believed this message. Because of their hard labor and because they're really suffering... Uh, they turn and accuse Moses and you can imagine. I mean, imagine Moses. He didn't want to go in the first place. Okay, he, he had to be persuaded. He went and now this happens and he's thinking I didn't want to go in the first place God and now Their their life is worse worse because I've come I was going to be their deliverer and now it's worse verse 22 Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? This is a intense honesty with God. You've done evil to the people, God. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses, I could we could say is accusing God. I mean, he said, God, you've done evil. You've done evil to this people. You've brought terrible things upon them. Then we get to maybe the most important passage, the most important section of this whole section of Scripture that we're going to read, starting in verse um, chapter one, 6, verse 1. But Yahweh said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So, Moses, it says he turns to the Lord. It's a very specific, he, he set aside time to seek God and pray. And in turning to God, in praying to God, and in being very honest with God, God responds. And what we get is almost a repeat of the, the encounter at the burning bush. There's no burning bush, there's no visible phenomena, but it's very similar because God does something. He reiterates his name, Yahweh, he reiterates who he is. And how he is about to show who he is. So let's read this carefully, starting in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they lived in as sojourners, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. This is the center. The next phrase is the center of everything. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from your slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know, there it is again, you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit. And harsh slavery. So God repeats his encounter. You could go back and read that encounter in chapter three, and in many ways it's similar. It's a reiteration of his name, but it's a unfolding, it's a further expansion of what he's about to say. And it repeats God's name at the beginning and end and in the middle. God is saying, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh, and I am about to show you who I am and what I am like God connects his name to what he's about to do. It's like God is saying, Watch this. All right? Look at what I'm about to do. You will know who I am. And this is not, by the way, this is very important theoretical knowledge of God. It's an experience of who God is because of what he does for his people. They're about to experience this knowledge of God. Yahweh acts in history. Yahweh acts in history. He acts in our lives in real time. And he invites us to be partners with him in what he's doing. This is what he did with Adam. This is what he did with Abraham. This is what he's doing with Moses. And it's what he's doing with Israel. He invites us in. And here you could say that Yahweh preaches the gospel to Moses. I'm Yahweh. And I'm about to act on behalf of this people. I'm committed to this people. And you are not going to believe the things I do for them. In the Passover Seder the Jews have celebrated for thousands of years, there are five cups of wine that they drink for every phrase. One cup for I'm gonna bring you out, another cup for I will deliver you, another cup for I will redeem you, another cup for I will take you to be my people and another cup for I will bring you into the land. It's a celebration and a savoring of all that God did for Israel in history. And Moses is encouraged by it. And he goes and he preaches to the people and he gets an experience similar to the last time, or the project last time. He's encouraged, it seems, but they can't listen. Now notice this too. God doesn't chastise the people for not believing here. Belief is fickle and it grows and fits and starts. And they have some belief, but when they suffer, they think God's not for us, he wants to kill us. Right, their their confidence in who God is wavers. But God's okay with that, he's patient, right? So he says, so Yahweh said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people, people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am, a, I am of uncircumcised lips. So once again, I think Pharaoh's in, I mean, Moses is encouraged, but he's like, look, God, I, I don't know. Maybe you made the wrong choice in sending me. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. This is the first time, by the way, that circumcision or uncircumcision gets applied in a metaphorical way. Right? Before it was a command. But this is the first time that Moses uses it in a way that doesn't apply to that. And if you go back to Abraham and the story of Abraham, Abraham was called to have children. And he couldn't have children. And in fact, he doesn't have children until he's circumcised. Right? It's like God gives this command... But he can't fulfill that command until he's cut in his flesh. And Moses is called to do all this speaking. And Moses says, Lord, my words don't work. It's not working. And, God's, and it's the scripture's way of saying, yes, but if I am with you and if I do with you and in you what only I can do, then your words will be effective. They will work. And then starting at verse 6, we get what you would totally expect at this point in the story as it goes along a genealogy. That was a joke. Okay. It's always worth asking why genealogies appear when they appear, what's going on? Why would this genealogy appear here? Well, go back to Moses. Uh, the people are going to have, they're going to be really fickle in regard to Moses, but to them, he's an outsider, right? He's never experienced the suffering they're experiencing. He's an Egyptian in one sense, he's a Midianite in another sense. And finally, he comes along and promises them all these wonderful things and their lives get worse. They don't want to listen to him. And so the question is, well, is Moses, I mean, should they listen to Moses? Is Moses legitimate? So what do we have? What we have here is a genealogy. And I think in part, it answers those questions. Who is Moses? Why should he be listened to? If you pay attention to to this genealogy, and we don't have time to read it or go into all the details, but I want to point out a couple of features. It describes the sons of Jacob, but only the first three. And it focuses on the third son, which is Levi. Now, if you'll remember, the first two sons sort of, uh, for various reasons, lose their inheritance. But it focuses on the house of Levi, which is the house of Moses. And so it's drawing specific attention to the line of Moses. So it covers those first three sons, but it focuses on Levi and the generation of the Levites and Moses, both Moses and Aaron, who are going to be the most important in starting worship for Israel. And this is also where we find out what Moses' mom's and dad's name is. Moses' mom's name is Jochebed, and his dad's name is Amram. Jochebed is the first name in the Bible to include the name Yahweh. You know how we have names like Daniel, and that's L is God's, the word for God, and Daniel means God gives. There's all kinds of names with L in it. Ezekiel, God gives strength, right? Um, but there are also names with Yahweh in the name. Joshua is an example. Usually names that begin in J, they have Yahweh as a part of their name. Moses' mom is the first one to have that in her name which is pretty interesting. It's another way the scripture is underlining, I am Yahweh, and I am about to act. I am about to do something. So, at any rate, I think this passage is there to say, why should they listen to Moses? Well, Moses is of this line that God has designated to start the priestly house, uh, and that's why you should listen. All right, we'll go to um, chapter 7. And this is the last uh, chapter seven, verse one. This is the last section we'll read. And Yahweh said to Moses, well, I should say just before this, Moses reiterates after the genealogy, God, I'm I'm of uncircumcised lips. My words don't work. They're not helping. And this is what God says. And Yahweh said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them." So God tells Moses how it's going to go. He says, Moses, I know exactly how this is going to unfold, and I know that it looks to you like it's going terribly, but this is exactly what I expected, and you need to know who I am and what I'm about to do. And he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is the passage that we always get to, and we think, man, that just doesn't seem fair. If God hardens Pharaoh's heart, does he not have free will? Can he not resist? I mean, can he not resist? But remember a few things. Remember what I said before. It didn't have to go this way. There are examples of Pharaohs who responded rightly to the people of God and brought blessing to the people of God. And later, there will be, there will be the emperor of Persia, Cyrus the Great who does something very similar. He says, oh, this is the people of God, and there God wants them to return to their land and build their temple. I'm going to give you money, and I'm going to send you on your way. So there are ways that leaders can respond that are right. So first, it didn't have to go this way. Pharaoh, um, this Pharaoh is responding poorly. But here's the important thing to note, I think. If you pay attention to these scriptures, and we'll get into the plagues next week and all of these, but if you pay attention... In the first five plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it's only in the sixth plague and thereafter that it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. I think the point is that Pharaoh is resistant and God is saying, I know he's resisting. And you know what? He has free will, but he's going to resist. And after a certain point, I'm finally going to harden his heart so that he can't turn back. And so that my people are going to leave Egypt, yes, but Egypt will know that I am God. My people will know that I am Yahweh. The nations will know that I am Yahweh. So this is what it's all moving towards. So Exodus, in part, is not just about Israel leaving Egypt. It's about them knowing that God is a deliverer, that God moves on behalf of his people. It's about Egypt knowing. It's about Pharaoh knowing. That he will act on behalf of his people. Let me draw out five observations or points or encouragements out of all this. The first one is this. Who is God? What is he like? It's Moses' question. It's Pharaoh's question. It's the people's question. And I would suggest it's our question. We are all orthodox by what we say. But in our hearts and in our thoughts, we often think very poorly of God. We think he's out to get us. We think he's not powerful enough. We think he's not motivated enough. We think maybe he's not with us. And God says repeatedly to Moses and to the people as well that I am with you and I am able and I am good. If you go back and read that section in 6, 2 through 8, God says, I'm going to do all these things. I am with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. I am well-intentioned towards you, and I am with you, and my timing isn't your timing, but I am good. So I think one of the most important things to come out of this, the result of all that God is going to do with Israel, is for them to know that Yahweh is God, that he is good, that he is with them, and he is powerful to do what he says he wants to do circumstances notwithstanding, and maybe even precisely the circumstances that God allows are the ones in which God wants to show himself strong and show himself kind and show himself powerful. And apparently Moses needs a reminder of this, which by the way, Moses saw the burning bush. That had to be pretty impressive. But Moses needed a reminder from God of who he was. Moses himself needed to rehearse this. And so do we. And we rehearse it every week, right? When we come to the table. He is with us at this table. He is good and he is mighty. The second thing, the real question of Exodus, a second question of Exodus is who will Israel serve? When they serve Pharaoh, what's it like? No rest. Commands to do with no resources to accomplish what they're called to do. Right. He not only demands bricks of them, but he takes away from them the resources they need to make bricks. That's what it's like to serve Pharaoh. That's what it's like to serve anything or anyone other than God. And this is the important place in which we have to put the teaching of Sabbath I know we as modern Americans think of Sabbath and we can sometimes get in the mode of thinking, oh, it's one of those rules and how do we make this happen, yada, yada, yada. Can you imagine what these guys thought of Sabbath when it came to them? Those who had been told to make bricks and not given the resources to do it and not given a break and beaten to death when they didn't accomplish it. And then God says, rest, my people, rest. So the question is, who are they going to to serve and what is it like? You serve Pharaoh, it's toil, toil, toil. You serve God, you serve Yahweh, it is rest for your soul. Okay, and again, this is where Jesus' words when he says, come to me all who are toil and are heavy laden, and I will give rest for your soul. All right, God, when we serve God, it gives rest. So the question is who they're going to serve. And what is it like to serve Pharaoh or any other earthly tyrant, or what it's like to serve Yahweh? The third thing breakthrough. The turning point often happens at the edge of despair. Okay, and this is not just good books and not just good movies, it's reality. It's reality. It got worse for them, but it got worse for them before God acted in a mighty way to deliver them. And they gave up hope, but I think the scripture would tell us that we're not supposed to give up. We're not supposed to lose hope. We're not supposed to go to that place. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, The Everlasting Man, says that if you look throughout the history of the church, there have been five or six times that Christianity has died, that it has gone to the dogs. But he says, it's the dogs who've died. Because we have a God who knows his way out of the grave. And that's the message of the resurrection, isn't it? The message of the resurrection is it's all lost. It's all over. The plan has not succeeded. It's not going to work. And then God acts. And then God moves. And so I think Moses is learning this. And Israel is learning this. And we're called to learn the same. Maybe there's something that God is doing in our lives or wants to do. And we've begun and we've given ourselves to it. And it's not working. Well, there's precedent for that. And we're called to recite who God is and stick to what he has said and trust that he knows his way out of the grave. Amen. The fourth thing, working with the uncircumcised. God always does this. He always works with the uncircumcised. And I believe he precisely tells his people to do things that they cannot do. Abraham have children. He cannot have children. Until he's circumcised. Moses, be a man of words. Moses can't do it unless God does something. Paul himself says, You know, I taught the word of God, but it's never had the power it's had until I was circumcised of lips by the message of the cross. It's never had the power that it's had until I focused on what God did in history in his son Jesus to bring him to an ignominious death. In order to set his people free. And when I allow the gospel. To be at the center of my words. Everything has changed. And so the answer to. God tells us to do something. Is always the gospel. And it's always on the other side of the cross. That he brings life. That he brings power. That his promise brings grace. So the difference between Pharaoh and God. Pharaoh commands. And takes away everything you need to do it. God commands. And gives you what you need to do it. And he does so in the gospel of his son. Amen? And then lastly, this theme of hardness of heart. I really do think that the message of Pharaoh regarding his heart is that he abused his free will. That he resisted God when God spoke. Repeatedly. To try to get him to do the right thing. To do what he ought to do. To do what people in power ought to do for those under them who are less privileged. And he hardens his heart and he doesn't listen. And I guess the admonition for us would be, the scripture repeatedly reminds us, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, as Israel did in the wilderness. And for us in all of our lives to open up our hearts to what the Holy Spirit might be trying to say to us. In various ways and by various means. As we read the story of the Exodus, remember the principle that you don't always think you are the right person in the story. Right? We all assume we're, maybe we read this and we assume we're Moses because we're a leader type. Maybe we're Israel, groaning under slavery. But maybe we're Pharaoh. Maybe we don't have the power and the authority that Pharaoh had, but maybe in this story and maybe at this time the Spirit would tell us we're Pharaoh and we're hardening our heart against some way in which God wants to speak to us. Now I don't have the answer to where we all are, but the word of God has the answer. It's quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the spirit knows where to push and where to press and where to cut in order to soften our hearts and to get us to listen to his voice. So we're going to come to the table tonight, but I thought...